Before we get to today's headlines, we're excited to invite you all to dig into bonus content, engage with the Murder Minute community, and talk to show creators on Himalaya Plus. Download the Himalaya app to get these perks and early access to episodes. The first 500 subscribers will be entered to win a $500 gift card. Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Cynthia Alvarez and Giovanni Gallardo. But first, your true crime headlines. Two people have been charged with murder in the death of an Alabama toddler who was abducted during a birthday party earlier this month. Three-year-old Camille Cupcake McKinney was last seen playing with another child at a birthday party on October 12th. Surveillance footage from the area shows the young girl playing outside with another small child when a man approaches and briefly stops where the children are playing. As she walks out of the view of the camera, the children follow. After that, Camille vanishes. Her body would be found 10 days later in a landfill inside a dumpster. The cause and time of her death have not yet been determined. Other children who attended the birthday party told police that they saw a man put the girl in an SUV and drive away. Tips came in about an SUV matching the description parked at a nearby apartment complex, and those would eventually lead police to their suspects. Charged with McKinney's murder are 39-year-old Patrick Stallworth and his girlfriend, 29-year-old Derek Irisha Brown. The couple were identified as persons of interest and both were arrested at their apartment on unrelated charges one day after the child went missing. After her body was found, those charges were upgraded to capital murder of a child under the age of 14. Stallworth and Brown are both being held without bond and could face the death penalty if convicted. A Colorado woman is facing murder and fraud charges related to the death of her daughter. Kelly Turner, also known as Kelly Gant, convinced the public that her daughter was terminally ill and collected more than half a million dollars in Medicaid payments and charitable donations. Her daughter Olivia, who died in 2017 at age 7, captured the hearts of many who followed her health journey through blog posts by her mother, documenting the young girl's supposed terminal illness. Olivia's body was exhumed two months after her death, and examiners were able to conclude that she had not suffered from a terminal illness, and instead had been subjected to numerous unnecessary medical procedures over the course of her short and tragic life. Her mother has been charged with two counts of murder because Colorado law includes a special provision for the murder of a child under 12 by a person in a position of trust. She is also facing child abuse and fraud charges for swindling charities and Medicaid out of more than half a million dollars in payments. GoFundMe intends to issue refunds to the 161 donors who contributed more than $20,000 to a fund for Olivia's care. A statement by the Make-A-Wish Foundation said in part, As we seek to learn more about the circumstances that led to Olivia's death, we fondly remember her spirit and hope that granting her wish brought some joy to her tragic life. Police in Florida are searching for a 28-year-old woman who was reported missing after she failed to pick up her son from school. 
Deputies say that Nicole Montalvo was last seen dropping off her son at the home of his father and grandparents. She was supposed to pick up her son from school the next day, but never showed up. Her family says that this behavior is completely out of character for Montalvo, who they described as a very responsible mother. Osceola County Sheriff's Major Jacob Ruiz told reporters that Montalvo's disappearance is suspicious, and they will not leave any stone unturned as they search for her. Police were actively searching the five-acre property where Montalvo's estranged husband and parents lived. The property includes a pond, several structures, and an RV. Montalvo's estranged husband, with whom she has a history of domestic violence, is not cooperating with investigators, but is not in custody at this time. Those were your true crime headlines. Next, the story of Cynthia Alvarez and Giovanni Gallardo. But first, a quick break. Jane Doe, number 65. At least that's the name the coroner's office gave the woman on October 15, 2011. Police found her decomposing, partially burned body after a jogger reported a foul smell near an abandoned house in Norwalk, a densely populated suburb of Los Angeles, on a crisp fall morning. Above her ankles, her legs were bound with duct tape. Her wrists were tied up in a bungee cord, and a towel, secured with more tape, covered her face. Two days later, her identity remained a mystery. Multiple news reports described the woman as Latina, around age 40, five foot two inches tall and of average build, and asked that anyone who had information about the case contact the Homicide Bureau. According to a coroner's report, an autopsy showed signs of blunt force trauma and strangulation. What had happened to this woman? Meanwhile, Police were notified of a missing person who they would soon learn was intimately connected to the case. The day before Jane Doe's body was discovered, 51-year-old Jose Lara hadn't shown up for work or called to say he'd be away, or even late. This was atypical for the hardworking man who held down multiple jobs to support his family. Concerned when he failed to return her calls, his boss, Blanca Serrano, drove to Jose's home two days later. No one answered the door, but a neighbor told Blanca that Jose's teenage stepdaughter, Cynthia Alvarez, said that Jose had taken her mom to the hospital for an eye procedure. The neighbor also described something peculiar. She said she had spotted Cynthia throwing what looked like tools and photos in the trash. Another neighbor said he had seen Jose's truck parked near the local Home Depot. Blanca drove to the Home Depot and found the truck, but any relief was momentary. The windows were down and there was no sign of Jose. Now she was concerned enough to call the police. The next day, three days after Jane Doe's body was found, an L.A. sheriff visited the home of Cynthia and her parents, Jose Lara and Gloria Bertina Villalta. There were no signs of forced entry, but police reports described the home as completely ransacked and stinking of rotten food, striking an eerie contrast to the Halloween decorations that were hung about. And no one in the neighborhood had seen Jose, Gloria, or Cynthia in several days. On the surface, the scene looked like a robbery. But then, the deputy found something in the living room that would break the case open. A notebook. 
flipping through the pages, he saw several large, handwritten phrases and black marker. I am too scared. I cannot do it. Do you think you can kill her in bed? What about if she's going to her bed? Can you kill her? She is setting down. Do it. When police spoke to Gloria's older daughter, 29-year-old Diana Vialta, she said she knew nothing about her mother having eye surgery. She also mentioned that her parents had major issues with her younger sister Cynthia's relationship with her boyfriend. Family and friends led investigators to two suspects, whose names were kept private at first because of their ages. They were the couple's 15-year-old daughter, Cynthia Alvarez, and her 16-year-old boyfriend, Giovanni Gallardo. When police brought Alvarez in for questioning, she told deputies a story that she later shared with Gallardo. She said her mom was hospitalized for an eye surgery and had requested no visitors, and that now she was starting to worry about her mother. Maybe Jose had lied about taking her to the hospital, she speculated. Had he hurt her mom? As for why she was disposing of what turned out to be her mother's belongings, not just tools and photos, in the trash, she said Jose had pulled a gun on her and Gallardo, forcing them to trash her mother's things. If they didn't follow his orders, he threatened that one of them would die. After hearing her story, an investigator said that there was just one problem with what she had described. We found a notebook. He read Alvarez her Miranda rights and revealed the book they'd found in the home, pointing out the pages with those incriminating phrases like, Do you think you can kill her in bed? Can you kill her? Alvarez admitted that the notebook and messages were hers, then shared a completely different story, one that painted her boyfriend as the instigator turned murderer, and Jose, her father, as a rapist. She said that she and Gallardo had discussed killing her parents for weeks. Gallardo brought it up first, she said, after she confided in him that Jose had raped her. She said she liked the idea of killing them, but at the same time, didn't. The day they followed through with their plot, she said Gallardo suggested they kill both of her parents and that she responded, no. Her mom was in the kitchen cooking dinner when Gallardo arrived to the home. Around 7.30 p.m., Alvarez said she went outside while Gallardo killed Gloria using alcohol. She returned inside to see her mother's body on a bedroom floor, tied up with duct tape. When her stepfather, Jose, returned shortly after, she said he left to talk to a neighbor. When he returned, Gallardo hit him in the head twice with a baseball bat, then seven more times once he was unconscious. Then he filled the man's nose and mouth with alcohol. When Jose started coming to, Alvarez told police Gallardo stabbed him over and over again until he was dead, then dragged his body near Gloria's. That evening, she said they dragged the bodies into Gloria's SUV, drove it several blocks away, dug a hole, placed her mother's body inside, and covered it up with dirt. The hole wasn't large enough for both bodies, she said, so they did away with Jose's body in a similar fashion, near an abandoned house. After taking and selling parts of Jose's truck, they parked it in a Home Depot parking lot and left it there. They left Gloria's Jeep somewhere else. Gallardo's story, well, stories, were very similar. 
He started sharing the hospital story, the one in which Gloria had eye surgery and Jose threatened them with a gun. But a deputy stopped him, letting him know they had already heard that story from Alvarez and had the real story. Gallardo cussed softly as though in surrender, then said that he was angry with his girlfriend's parents. He said Jose not only raped her, but threatened him, disrespected his family, and called the cops on him. He wanted to get revenge, he said, so he killed them both. Like Alvarez, he said the two had talked about murdering their parents for a couple of weeks. On the day of the murders, he showed up at the house with a backpack containing a baseball bat, a towel, rubbing alcohol, and a Halloween mask. As Alvarez stepped into the bathroom, she told him to go, go quick. So he approached Gloria from behind, clutching the towel, which he had soaked in rubbing alcohol. He placed it over the woman's mouth until she collapsed, then strangled her with his hands. He said they chatted and watched TV while they waited for Jose to come home, at some point looking for an iPod Gloria had taken from Alvarez. He also took a gold bracelet from Gloria's body. He too said he killed Jose by hitting him with a baseball bat and then stabbing him before they buried the bodies and abandoned their cars. But his story differed greatly in an important way. He described Alvarez as a very willing participant, no pressuring from him required. The same day the two were interviewed, investigators searched Alvarez's home, finding bloodstains on a couch, the floor, and a mop. They also found a Halloween mask and party supplies, empty jewelry boxes, and a backpack. In a nearby field sat the bloodied baseball bat used on Jose. Soon after the interviews, Gallardo led investigators to Jose's body, pointing out other evidence very matter-of-fact. And Jane Doe, number 65, was identified as Gloria Bertina Vialta. Alvarez and Gallardo were charged and arrested for the murders. And although both were under 18 at the time of the crimes, they would be tried as adults. At the trial, Alvarez took the stand, testifying that her boyfriend had talked about killing her parents, but that she didn't think he was, quote, that type of person. She said he showed up at her family's home the day of the murders wearing a black mask, told her he planned to kill her parents, and again, that she said no. He stayed outside for a while, she added, until she invited him inside, where he hid in a storage room. Meanwhile, she sat where she could see him and write messages to him on the notepad detectives would later find. She said she wrote, She is setting down, to let him know her mother was sitting in the kitchen, and... I am too scared because she feared Guillardo. She claimed that when she wrote, if she's going to bed, can you kill her? Because she, quote, didn't want to see what he was doing to her and see it in front of her face because she might have flashbacks. During cross-examination, she agreed with the prosecution when they asked her if she actually wrote those messages because she thought it would be easier to kill her mother while she was asleep that she was instructing him with those words. And those Halloween decorations? With her mother's body in the back of the car, she testified. She and Gallardo shopped for supplies for a party they planned to have in the very place her parents were killed. 
Still, Alvarez testified that she acted entirely out of fear, speaking of Gallardo's history of violence and aggression toward her. She alleged that he had hit and choked her, called her names and pulled her hair, and that weeks before the murders, he held a knife to her throat during an argument. At one point, she said, he forced her to swallow pills that made her feel weird, then raped her while she couldn't do anything about it, and said, he always told me, if I ever did anything, he would come and hurt me again. Gallardo and Jose weren't the only abusers in her life, she testified, stating that her mother had yelled at her and seldom let her spend time with her friends, her boyfriend included. Defense attorney Carol Telfer told jurors that her mother essentially kept her as a slave for her personal use. Alvarez estimated that Jose had touched her inappropriately more than 30 times and, four or five years before the murders, raped her. Despite all of this, she said she did not want or encourage anyone to kill them. Numerous witnesses testified on behalf of Alvarez, describing her as nice, shy, quiet, and polite, and corroborated her claims about the physical and sexual abuse she endured. According to an LA Times article published the week of the trial, Alvarez's sister Diana told the court, with the help of a Spanish-language interpreter, that Alvarez looked after her mother, even though her mom had disciplined her with a belt. She described her sister as very caring, respectful, and said she loved their mother very much. Dr. Nancy Kaser boyd a forensic psychologist, interviewed Alvarez, conducted a series of tests, and reviewed her school and police records, finding that Alvarez had a verbal IQ of 86, putting her in the lowest 14th percentile for her age. Other tests indicated that she was depressed, suffered from child abuse, and perceived herself as damaged. This was important for her case, Dr. Kayser Boyd explained, because abused kids often feel valueless, helpless, making them more vulnerable to additional abuse and domination by others. She said Alvarez showed no signs of having antisocial personality disorder. In other words, that she wasn't displaying patterns of manipulating people or a lack of remorse. The prosecution argued the opposite, showing police interview video that revealed two sides of Alvarez. The demure side she showed to investigators, which they considered an act, and the cunning manipulator she presented when she was left alone in a room with Gallardo. A forensic neuropsychologist testified that Gallardo had an IQ of 57, indicating an extremely low range of intellectual ability, consistent with mild to moderate mental disabilities. He was the puppet, and his girlfriend was pulling the strings. Was Cynthia Alvarez the helpless victim her defense team made her out to be? One who made a horrific decision out of self-protection? Or a cold-blooded killer who wanted to do away with her parents so she could be with her boyfriend, the pair caring more about the Halloween party they planned than Gloria and Jose's lives? Either way, that they were teenagers had to have played a role. Because their brains aren't fully developed, teens have a much harder time comprehending consequences than adults and are far more likely to act impulsively. Neuroscience research published in Current Opinion in Neurobiology showed that teens' heightened vulnerability to reward is what drives risky behaviors. 
Studies also show that teen offenders are better able to rehabilitate and not commit crimes again given proper care. But these two teens were tried as adults for one of the most heinous acts one can commit. Acts that ended two lives and tragically impacted many more. In the end, the jury sided with the prosecution. In separate trials, juries convicted both Cynthia Alvarez and Giovanni Gallardo on two counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances, deeming that they each used a deadly weapon. The judge sentenced Gallardo to a life in prison without the possibility of parole. Alvarez was sentenced to two consecutive terms of 25 years to life, plus one year for the weapon enhancement. Reporter Paresh Dave wrote for the LA Times, Even as she pleaded for a sentence that would let her live in sunshine again, a 17-year-old girl convicted of murdering her parents expressed little remorse other than admitting to mistakes. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. For exclusive content and early access, find the show on Himalaya.